0: Thank you, Dub. Well, it's lovely to see you. As, as Dub said, I'm Steve Petch. I'm the lead pastor at Welcome Church. Um, I'm married to Joe, and uh, hopefully there should be a photo of us about to appear. Joe's a head teacher at a special school uh, in, in Portsmouth, and uh, well, lovely to have her here with us as well. We've got three grown-up children. Um, They're all adults now in their own right. One of them got married last Saturday, so uh, that was exciting. means she's not here with us, unfortunately, at West Point this year. But the other two, our boys are here. They're both uh, stuck in in serving. Such a privilege to be speaking to you today. Thank you for staying for this seminar. Just to make sure that you're in the right place, my seminar title is Belong, Believe, Become, Helping a Broken World to Meet Jesus. That's what I want to talk about. Now... Last summer, I had the privilege of taking a sabbatical break. It's an absolute joy. I I loved it. And one of the things I did with my time was to climb mountains. And uh, I I don't mean anything that involved ropes or, or, you know, crampons or that sort of stuff. Only ones that you could walk up. Um, But among those mountains was Ben Nevis, which you may know is the highest mountain in the United Kingdom. It stands at uh, over 4,400 feet, and it had snow on the top in June. That's about the 28th of June. That's me sitting in the snow there at the top of the mountain, and I loved it. But what was so interesting for me at the top of Ben Nevis, not just snow, but there's also the ruins of a four-bedroom hotel, (laughs) which... Amazing, I had no idea it was there. There are the ruins of a four bedroom hotel right on the top of this highest peak in the UK. Now, apparently this hotel was opened in the late 1800s but it only operated for around 30 years. I think I've got a picture, here. Yeah, that's some of the ruins of it up there. Operated for around 30 years. It closed in 1916 and now it's just a ruin. And to, to make it even funnier, someone climbed up there in the 1950s and stole all the lead off the roof. And uh, so it really is just a ruin. Um, and as I stood there in my sabbatical on this mountaintop, I believe God spoke to me. i had been praying for him to speak to me right through this sabbatical time. But what he said to me there brought me up short. And it was, I felt a really simple phrase, just this. If you don't change the culture within your church, it could go exactly the same way as these ruins. Now, that brought me up short. If you don't change the culture within your church, it could go the same way as these ruins. There was a time when that hotel was in regular use. People still use hotels, but that one is just a memory, just a few bricks left standing. Could our church really go the same way? And it got me thinking about my experience of church and church culture over the years. Now now don't get me wrong, I absolutely love the church. I've planted churches, led churches, built churches. I love the church. But there is this truth that many of us may be acutely aware of, that sometimes the culture of church life and the way that we express and live out our faith can deter the people that we're called to reach, and that there are people in our nation with, with huge spiritual questions and deep spiritual hunger, so why is it that sometimes the church is not even in their thinking as a place to look? And I think that what we might have could be a cultural problem. Now, culture is really, really interesting. We all know, don't we, that culture changes. It varies from place to place. Culture changes from nation to nation, city to city. Culture varies even over time. And and one small example of culture would be fashion. So, uh... In the 1970s, it was fashionable to wear huge bell-bottom trousers. Some of us in this room would have had huge bell-bottom jeans, right? Any, anyone? Okay. I hope you've got rid of them now. Um, as I was a teenager, the fashion was different. The fashion was for skin-tight jeans. And, and I kid you not, I used to have to lie on the floor and pull my jeans inside out to take them off. There's an image you want to take away with you. Uh, and, but fashions changed. Just the other evening, one of my boys was about to go out of the house, and I noticed that there was a one-inch gap between the top of his Doc Martin boots and the bottom hem of his jeans, a one-inch gap of skin. And I said to him, your jeans are too small for you. <laughs> Huge mistake huge mistake. No, no, apparently they're designed to be like that. He even turns them up to make them shorter. And apparently what I wear are called dad jeans. (laughs) What can I say? Dad jeans. But of course, fashion is just one aspect of culture. And in recent years, the culture in the UK has changed in some very significant ways. Some of these changes have been fantastic and some of them are perhaps not so good. I mean, think about some of the changes in attitude that we've seen in our culture. The attitude that people have towards the roles of men and women has changed, changed within my lifetime. Attitudes towards equal pay, attitudes towards race and what is okay and not okay to say. Attitudes to family life, attitudes to marriage, attitudes to gender, attitudes to sexuality. And alongside all of that, the attitude of our culture towards the church. If there was once a time when people in our nation had respect for the church, to me those days seem to be long, long, long. Gone. Now, I I used to be a pharmacist. That was my training when I told people I was a pharmacist. It usually met with uh, various friendly, warm, positive, sometimes interested responses. But when I now say I'm a church pastor, I can clear the room. It's not often met with respect. I mean, I recently met with someone who works in in local government, and uh, they were, to be fair, very friendly, very warm and positive towards our church. They're not a Christian, but they love what we do for the community. Very warm and positive. But their starter question kind of took my breath away a little. It was this, so tell me, why is it that you hate gay people? Opening question. Why is it that you hate gay people? And I've got to be honest with you, it wasn't an aggressive question, it was just an honest question based on their assumption, which was this, you're a Christian, you're part of a church, therefore, you're one of those people that hates people. That's how they viewed the church, and they wanted me to explain it. Can you explain? Because you seem like a nice guy. You may have had similar experiences yourself, perhaps at work or at college, perhaps more aggressive experiences, or perhaps you hide your faith at work or at college to avoid exactly those kind of experiences. Life in Babylon, UK, how do we handle this? If we went to another nation with a missions agency, they would give us cross-cultural training to help us to be effective in our calling so that we didn't cause unnecessary offense listen UK culture has changed I believe we may now be in need of cross cultural training to reach the UK with the gospel if uh, if Jesus is the same yesterday today forever and he is wonderful if God's word is unchanging and it is it doesn't mean that church culture can be unchanging God doesn't change, but how we express our faith must change. I mean, the Apostle Paul said this, he said, he became all things to all people so that he might save some. And what he means is this, he's adjusting his approach as he goes from place to place and encounters different cultures and languages and ways of doing things. He changed the way he presented himself. What lengths are we prepared to go to, to reach this nation and advance God's kingdom with the gospel? What things are we willing to do differently in the nation that we're from? And what things are we willing to stop doing in order to be effective? Now, the church I lead started in the year 1879. We're now 139 years old. Over that time, a lot of cultural things have changed. For example, we're now called Welcome Church. That was a change and and it came out of culture. We now have a music band instead of an organ. It's quite exciting. We've now got comfortable seats, unlike these ones, um, instead of wooden pews. In our church now, the women no longer wear hats, but some of the young men do. (laughs) Go figure. And, And I love this one, one of my favorites. We now have electric lights in our building, even though in the year 1915, some of our faithful members voted against the expensive installation of this new and frivolous technology called electricity. (laughs) Those were all cultural changes. None of them were about the essence of the gospel and cultural change continues to happen I mean in recent years many of our churches many churches have tried to develop what we might call a more seeker sensitive approach you might have heard of that phrase it might mean different things to different people uh, to me that that would mean something like this it mean being aware that our meetings particularly our Sunday meetings don't just have Christians in them that there are people coming who are not yet Christians And so it means being aware of that, and it means preaching in ways that they can understand, uh, trying not to put them off with religious language, or by uh, using terms they haven't heard, by explaining things as we go along, not being too weird. And uh, I think apparently it also means serving really good coffee. And, And those changes, they are so important. But there's a challenge, because we can have all of those things in place. We can have comfortable chairs, we can have quality music, we can have accessible preaching, we can have the best coffee in town, and yet we can still remain inaccessible to people from our broken, damaged culture who Jesus is trying to reach. The truth is, if we want to help a broken world to meet Jesus, we need to make sure that we treat people how Jesus treated them. Did you catch that? We need to represent, or perhaps I should say re-present, Jesus to them. Let's read from the Bible. This is Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 50. I'll read it to you. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman from that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume, and she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. And she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, and she kissed them, and she poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. We'll pause there. So Jesus gets an invitation to the home of a Pharisee for a meal, and while he's there, he's approached by a woman who's lived this sinful life. The implication of the passage is that she's probably a prostitute, and the Pharisees are shocked, and they start to question Jesus' judgment. If he's a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman that she was, and of course, they would then expect that Jesus would have distanced himself from this lady. and. It just reminded me of a story, perhaps you've heard it before, from a preacher called Tony Campolo from his book, The Kingdom of God is a Party. We're talking about the theme of the kingdom here at West Point this year. Now, Tony can be a little controversial, but this story is really, really helpful. And he talks about a time when he was visiting Honolulu in Hawaii. And of course, he was quite jet-lagged because of the time difference, and he found himself unable to sleep in the middle of the night, so he went out for food at a late-night diner and he sat there eating. It's about 3.30 in the morning, apparently, when in came a group of eight or nine prostitutes who sat down either side of Tony at the counter. And he says that in the course of a rowdy conversation, one woman said to her neighbor, that, tomorrow's my birthday, I'm turning 39. And a friend turned to her and said, so, what do you want me to do? Do you, do you want to have a birthday party? Do you think we should have a cake and a party or something? And she turned back to the woman and said, well, look, you don't have to put me down. You don't have to be so mean. I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. I don't expect to have one now. Now, after these women went back out into the night, Tony spoke to Harry, who was operating the bar, operating the diner, and said, do these guys come here every night? And Harry said, yes. He said, what do you say we throw a party for that lady tomorrow night? Tony said, yeah, her name's Agnes, apparently. He said, yeah, we'll have a party for her. Good idea. And it was quickly arranged. It was agreed that Tony would decorate the diner. Harry said he'd provide a cake. And so the following evening, Tony says he got there early, about half past two. He brought streamers, a big poster, happy birthday, Agnes, and put it up behind the bar. And he said by 3.15, he said he realized word must have got out because every prostitute in Honolulu must have been squeezed into that diner. His quote was this, he said, it was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. (laughs) And he says, at 3.30, as usual, in came Agnes and her friends. And as they came through the door, everyone yelled, happy birthday, Agnes. And they all started singing happy birthday. Now, apparently, she was so stunned in this moment. Tony says, I've never seen anybody actually do this. He said, her knees buckled they had to steady her and sit her down on a stool, And then Harry brought the cake out and said, blow out the candles, Agnes. Apparently she was too overcome, and he had to blow the candles out for her, and then gave her a knife to say, cut the cake. And what she said was this, is it okay if I don't cut the cake? I'd like to take it home and show it to my mother. I only live two doors down, let me show my mother, I'll bring it right back. And apparently she picked the cake up, walked out the door, and it flapped shut behind her. And Tony says it, there was total silence in the diner, just total silence. And so he thought for a moment and said, "Uh, what do you say we pray? And he says, looking back on it, I'm gonna quote him now, it's weird looking back on it now, leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning, but it was the right thing to do. And so he says he prayed that God would deliver her from what dirty, filthy men had done to her. Men had used and abused her. And he said, I prayed, God, deliver her. Make her a new creation, because I've got a God who can make us new no matter what we've been through or what we've done. And I prayed that God would make her new. And Tony says, as he finished his prayer, Harry from behind the bar leaned over the counter and said to him, you told me that you were a sociologist. You're not a sociologist, you're a preacher. What kind of... What kind of church do you belong to? And Tony said, in one of those moments where you just, you just get given the right words to say, he looked at Harry and replied, I belong to the kind of church that throws parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. But apparently Harry turned to him and replied and said this. He says, I'll never forget his answer. It was this, no, you don't. No, you don't. Because if there was a church like that, I would join it. (laughs) Now, let's just consider Harry's question for a moment. What kind of church do you belong to? What kind of church do we belong to? What is it that stops us from building churches like that? What stops us From treating people with messy lives with the value that God sees in them. What stops us? What gets in our way? Why is it that some of the most needy people think that the church is the last place on earth that would welcome them? I want to suggest, if I might, two answers. They're not pretty answers. First thing that stops us is simply this, self-righteousness. By which I mean the hideous, subtle, and incorrect belief or feeling that we're better than other people. Question. Are people with messy, sinful lives drawn to you and your church, or do they tend to avoid you? See, I suspect, if we were honest, that most of us would really want, at some level, to belong to a church like that, as Tony called it. But let's also acknowledge that it is not often the message that we give out or live out. And if we were really, really honest, many of us would find it hugely uncomfortable if next Sunday morning, a group of eight or nine noisy prostitutes... Or some other group, perhaps more likely, whose lifestyle is obviously not in line with God's standards or morality. Or maybe just a group of adults with learning difficulties who are a bit noisy. Some group turned up. I don't think we would always feel that comfortable. Are people with messy lives drawn to our churches? All too often, the answer is no. So why is it? And I wonder if perhaps it's because too often we've come across to them like the self-righteous Pharisees from our passage today. You see, I can remember a young couple a few years back. This young couple, not yet Christians, but in contact with our church and exploring faith through the Alpha course. And after a few weeks of Alpha, they came to a Sunday morning a couple of times, and they liked that, and then they wanted to join a small group, so they went along to a small group, and when they attended small group for the first time, someone asked them the question, how long have you been married? And they replied, oh, we're not married. And what followed is really, really sad, because group members piled in, on this couple with their version of the Christian rulebook, rebuking them for their sinful lifestyle, making sure that they had been told right from wrong, challenging them of the need to repent, and guess what? We never saw them again. But the group members were so sure that they had done the right thing because we told them the truth and how they respond to truth is on them. Lost to church, possibly forever. You see, this was the problem with the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Their lives were built around a sin management program. They were fixated on the sin in other people's lives and on keeping themselves looking pure. And the Pharisees thought that they were the good people, that they were God's zealous people. And they realized that those other people who didn't live like they did, they were sinners. They were outsiders. They were lacking in zeal, deserving of condemnation. And Jesus sums the Pharisees up like this. You hypocrites, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And he went on to warn them. Those prostitutes and tax collectors who you despise are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. Now, we might bristle at the idea that we could ever be like the Pharisees. I mean, surely not us, but our hearts can deceive us. It is far too easy to turn the Christian faith into a kind of sin management program. And it's very, very easy to end up becoming self-righteous and pharisaical towards people who Jesus wants to draw to himself. I mean, ask yourself this question, why is it? that all kinds of people flocked to be around Jesus. But 2,000 years later, people can be wary of his church, wary of his followers, expecting judgment more than help. The Pharisees taught people a love of law. Say it again, they taught people a love of law. Jesus taught people the law of love. It's very different love of law, the law of love. And this difference brought Jesus into constant conflict with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they made accusations against Jesus. They accused Jesus of breaking the religious rules, and they accused Jesus of associating with the wrong sort of people and of being a friend of sinners. And Jesus made accusation against the Pharisees. He accused them of being judgmental, hard-hearted hypocrites who lacked love for people. Let's ask a question which set of accusations might we get thrown at us today? Which set of accusations is our nation more likely to point at the church? Are we more likely to be accused of breaking all the religious rules and welcoming sinners? Or are we more likely to be accused of being hard-hearted, judgmental, and hypocrites? In short, does this nation view the church as being more like Jesus or more like the Pharisees? It's a question that ought to concern us greatly. But it's not just self-righteousness that stops us. Something else stops us as well. The second thing that stops us from building churches like that is fear. Fear of what other believers will think of us. If I'm close to that person with that lifestyle, other people might think that I think that's okay. They might question whether I've really got this right or not. Fear that we'll be misunderstood, that that person will think that we condone their lifestyle. I need to tell them, or others might think I do, and fear that if we welcome obviously messy, sinful people into our churches with open arms, the church will be less pure, that there will be sin in the camp. Like there isn't already. (laughs) I mean, a friend of mine put it like this. He said... Every church should have sexual immorality in it. There's a shocking statement. Every church should have sexual immorality in it. I'll just be clear. I don't mean amongst the eldership team, all right? (laughs) But the point they're making is this. Think, Think about it. In this UK culture, if we do not have constantly ongoing challenges of discipleship in this area, it's probably an indication that we are no longer reaching new people with the gospel. So let's look again at the example of Jesus, I mean he was accused of being a friend of sinners and he was, guilty as charged, I am a friend to sinners. He saw the value in lost broken people. Let's see how he handled the situation, so I read it again, a woman who'd lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know who's touching him. What kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now, now Jesus, the rabbi, having dinner, in walks this sinful, well-known, immoral woman. And she starts massaging Jesus' feet with perfume. And Jesus is totally unfazed. Can I say, I don't think... There are many ministers today, be they church ministers or government ministers, who would still be in their job a week later were this to happen. I mean, Jesus is under some pressure to respond, but he's completely secure in his identity and in his calling. He just doesn't respond to, to pressure. He's, he's not phased by this. He's not bothered by what the Pharisees are thinking. Instead, he starts to tell a story that exposes Simon's heart. Jesus said, Simon, I've got something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. He said, well, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other owed him 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him the more? And Jesus tells this story about the moneylender and the debtors, and the key point is this. Both of them had an unpayable debt. Now, Simon the Pharisee and this immoral woman Are clearly in view here as are all of us they're both sinners there's no other type of people now one's debt potentially may have appeared smaller than the other person's debt but the net result is the same a debt that's unpayable and a God who can cancel the debts of both and Jesus wants to know well who's gonna be the most grateful who's gonna love him more and Simon replied well I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven You've judged correctly, Jesus said. And then Jesus turns to the woman and says to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, but you didn't give me any water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss of greeting, but this woman from the time I entered hasn't stopped kissing my feet. And you didn't put oil on my head, but she's put perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus turned to her and said, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say, who's this who forgives sins? So Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Simon had a problem. His self-righteousness and his pride kept him from Jesus, whereas this sinful woman loved Jesus intensely because she knew how undeserving she was of God's love question do you know how undeserving you are of God's love do you do you do you like the apostle Paul 1 Timothy 1:15, 1 really believe that Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the very worst or, or, or deep down do you think there are actually others who are probably a bit worse than you Simon's debt of sin, like ours, it wasn't small. He didn't have a small debt. Think of Simon's debt of sin. Hypocrisy, judgmentalism, pride, self-righteousness, a lack of love, hard-heartedness, rudeness, planning murder. I mean, these guys had Jesus executed. Let's make a list. But the difference was that Simon's sins were hidden so he can get by in polite company, just like most of us. And his ungrateful heart led to him treating Jesus so rudely, as Jesus points out. Why did he treat Jesus rudely? May I suggest probably a mix of self-righteousness mixed with fear. What would these other Pharisees think of him welcoming this Rabbi Jesus into his home? Would they think he approved? The truth is, Simon did not see where the worth in a human being comes from. He saw his value as coming from his own goodness. He ascribed value to good people like himself. He saw no value in a sinner like this woman. But his perspective was so wrong and the value of something, simply put, can be found in what someone will pay for it. And the value of that woman is immense, for God so loved the world that he gave, he paid his one and only son, that whoever believes might not perish but have eternal life. But don't forget the next verse, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Christians please listen. It is not our job to condemn people. It is our job to represent Jesus and to love people as Jesus loved them. John 12, 47, Jesus said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. We are told to proclaim the gospel, and gospel means good news. And if you hear preaching, and it doesn't sound like good news, it might not be the gospel, that's being preached we are not here to preach judgment and condemnation we're here to preach the grace of God to a hostile culture we're surrounded by so many people who already feel condemned we're surrounded by people who already know they failed and are seeking spiritual answers they know that what's happened what they've got doesn't add up they want truth but when they think about church all they're expecting is more condemnation It's our job to bring people hope. It's our job to show them there's a new kingdom they can belong to, that new life is available. Whatever someone's background, whatever their lifestyle, whatever they've done or had done to them, they can find forgiveness and new life in Jesus Christ. There is no group of people who is too far gone for Jesus to reach. Amen? So, here's the question. What might this mean for our churches? What could this mean for how we build church in Babylon, UK today? You see, UK culture has changed, so church culture needs to change. We have to adjust to be able to embrace the broken, damaged lives around us as Jesus did in his culture. How could we create a culture today where people from any background or lifestyle can find a welcoming place to explore faith with us? Here's a simple tool to help you thinking. This has really helped me. Three things that as churches we're always trying to help people do. Conveniently, they all start with a B. Okay, B. We're going to put them on the screen. Firstly, believe. We want people to believe in Jesus. Can I hear an amen? amen? Isn't that important? Secondly, we want people to belong. We want them to be part of a local church. Amen? Brilliant. And thirdly, it's not an ideal world, but it's a word, but it starts with a B. We want people to, I'm going to say behave. We want people to behave, we want people to live out their faith in Jesus and work out what God worked in. Now, these three B's, I want people to believe in Jesus, belong to a church, and that faith to impact how they behave. Living for Jesus. Hopefully, you can recognize these basic concepts from your experience of church. Churches have been trying to do this as long as there have been churches to do anything. Now, your experience might be different to mine. But I'll tell you what I've seen, which is that the order of priority we put on these three words massively impacts the culture of the church. Now, I grew up in a church context where we'd order them like this. It was behave, believe, belong. This was the church that I grew up in. Behave came first. So it meant this. If you were the right sort of person... So reasonably wealthy, come from the right part of town, outwardly moral lifestyle, someone might invite you along to our lovely church. And nice people got invited, our sort of people got invited, and and if you came to church, you might along the way hear the gospel. And if you then came to believe in Jesus and you were baptized, then after a rigorous thorough membership interview and after everyone else had voted you might be allowed to belong to become a church member and that then meant you were allowed to vote on church issues so behave and then if you came to believe we might let you belong truth is we didn't see many people saved but it didn't bother us we didn't really talk about it much either so uh later on i found a new frontiers church man it was so different And it really comes down to this. We had ordered the first two words differently. So we were working like this, believe, behave, belong. And so we'd swap the first two around because we'd understood grace, we'd realized the gospel is for everybody. So we were really passionate about evangelism. We would go out and we'd try and reach people. Oh, we saw all sorts of people come to faith in Jesus. And once they'd believed in Jesus, we'd set about a process of discipleship with them and we'd teach them how to live like a Christian, what it meant to, to, to behave like a Christian. And once the big issues were sorted in their lives, which basically meant that the major visible sins were dealt with, and uh, that was okay. Then we would allow people to get baptized, and then after that, they would be allowed to belong to the church as a member. Now, they didn't get a vote, because no one got a vote, different kind of church, but it did mean at that point they were allowed to get involved with things like serving, or maybe leading something. So uh, so it went, believe, behave, belong. I built church like this for years, when I first started in leadership. I, and it have to say, it worked fairly well. I would say, We saw lots of effects, lots of good positive things, but along the way, I would also say there were people who struggled to find acceptance, especially if the background was messy. I reckon there was a highish dropout rate between believing and belonging, higher than I would like to see. And the truth is that despite we had this passion for evangelism, it was pretty hard for new Christians or people who were not yet Christians to really connect to the church. Belonging was like a huge step to climb, so there was very much still a them and an us, an in and an out. I'd suggest this is how loads of churches still operate today. I would suggest very few of us would operate like that first model, but I would suggest lots of us might operate exactly like this. But culture has changed. i say again, I've built church like this, But my experience has shown me, over the last 10 years or so, I think this has become less and less effective at engaging people in our nation with the gospel. And I would like to suggest and propose to you where my thinking and culture has led me, we need a different order again, which I would call this, belong, believe, behave belong needs to come first not last. Now this is a huge change and please listen so carefully. When I say belong, I'm not now referring to church membership. I simply mean this, creating a culture that genuinely and meaningfully welcomes people in all their messy broken sinfulness and allows them to find a genuine and meaningful community with us before they believe in Jesus. A bit radical. But that's what Jesus modeled for us, like with his disciples who were feeding 5,000 people long before they believed in Jesus, right? I mean, allowing people to be a genuine part of our church community before they come to faith. And let me be really clear what I don't mean. I don't mean a friendly Sunday welcome, a guest card to fill in, a special guest's coffee area where I might get a piece of cake and an invitation to Alpha and a little follow up letter to say thanks for coming. I don't mean that. That's not belong, believe, become. That's kind of, seeker sensitive, that's where that would be. I don't mean that. Though you might want to do all of those things. I mean allowing people to be part of the community fully. So what do I mean? I mean drawing people who are not yet Christians right into the church community, just as they are. Joining small groups, serving in appropriate ways, involvement in social action, involvement in all we do, part of the community while exploring faith. I mean, knowing that they belong before they believe. Now, obviously, this needs wisdom. Praise God, he's given us his Holy Spirit. I know it's always easier to live by rules and by tick boxes than it is to follow the Holy Spirit. Of course... There are a few roles in church life that are only appropriate for a committed Christian. I know that, you know that. We understand it, and people understand that. We don't want the kids' work probably being taught by someone that's not yet a Christian, probably not. There are some roles where this is important. But do you know what? You don't need to be born again to make a decent cup of tea, praise God, because some of us would have had a long wait. You don't need to be born again to run the AV system. Just as you didn't need to be born again to let Jesus use your boat to teach the crowds, or to row him across the lake, And we have to be secure to do this, just as Jesus was. We need to know who we are. We need to know our people well and have faith that God is at work. Now, this has implications for lots of areas of church life. And I know from experience, uh, people will hear me and jump to all the wrong conclusions, and there's very little I can do about that. But I just want you to understand that pastoral wisdom is paramount. But get this, in our current UK culture as it stands today, people need to know they are accepted before they are willing to listen to our message at all. People have become completely skeptical of being manipulated by spin. They're put off by any lack of integrity or authenticity. It's not enough to just say, oh God loves you and we love you too. People need to see it, they need to feel it, they need to experience it. And this is especially true of this emerging generation that the media are referring to as millennials. A generation with very different values to their parents, just like every other generation before them. Uh, So we start with a culture of belonging. Now, of course, belonging's not the goal. We want to introduce people to Jesus. And as people find meaningful community with us, we create authentic opportunities to both demonstrate and explain the gospel to them, to talk about Jesus, to model kingdom life and kingdom family life and culture, to take them to that Alpha course, to pray for them, in that, to bring them to that small group, for them to hear the Bible being taught and to share life and faith with them. Belonging creates the doorway for the gospel, for believing. And guess what? Surprise, surprise. Once people come to believe in Jesus they begin to change. Oh, they really do. Honestly, they honestly do. Change happens. They begin to live a life worthy of the calling they've received, albeit with many trips and stumbles along the way. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's at work. He really is. I mean, for example, Joe and I, when we had uh, one of our our children, the midwife who came to our house became a Christian. Praise God. I'd like us to take credit, but we can't. But she became a Christian during that time. And I remember on her last time sitting down with us, she told us a story about how she had just thrown away all her Stephen King books. Now, it was really interesting. I said, oh, tell me about that. She said, "I just started to feel really uncomfortable when I read them. Some of you know they're kind of supernatural, a bit of horror. Maybe you read them. I wouldn't. If I'd known, I wouldn't have said anything to her. But the Holy Spirit convicted her. This isn't wrong. I felt uncomfortable. No one told her. I can think about one of my relatives who became a Christian as an adult. As the years went by, every year he became softer, kinder, and more generous. It's got to work. It wasn't just the passing of time." Another relative said this to me, after I became a Christian, no one needed to tell me to repent. There was a lot I didn't know at first. I needed teaching, but as I learned God's ways, the Holy Spirit convicted me and led me to repent and changed how I lived. What I needed from the church was grace and time for God to work. You see, once someone's genuinely saved, it changes how they behave, but let's consider that word for a moment because ultimately, we don't want people to behave we want them to become. We want them to become like Jesus. Behaviour comes out of identity. Behaviour comes out of who we believe we are, who we believe we're becoming. Please listen carefully, rule driven, external behaviour is not the goal of Christian discipleship. We are not called to teach people to follow the Christian rulebook so that they can fit in at church and be accepted. Or somehow become more acceptable to God we can't make people acceptable to God we can't even make ourselves acceptable to God who are we trying to kid we come to Jesus as we are by grace and grace alone no the goal of discipleship is for people to learn who they are in Jesus and learn to live out of that new identity as kingdom people we want people to become who Jesus intended them to be in him and when that happens Guess what? External behavior is transformed from the inside out as people learn to love and follow him. So we don't say belong, believe, behave. We say belong, believe, become. Discipleship mustn't be about teaching people to follow the rules. It has to be about teaching people who they are in Jesus and living out of that identity. Just consider again the passage we read, Jesus and that sinful woman. She did not belong in Simon the Pharisee's home, but Jesus welcomed her. Then he, he, he talked to him, we see by her actions that she has come to believe in him. So he can say to her, your sins are forgiven. She's got faith. And then Jesus sent her away to live her new life. Go in peace, your faith has saved you. He sent her away to become. I wonder what became of her, I wish I knew. So the question that keeps challenging me from all of this is this, how will we respond when God sends damaged or sinful people our way? How will we respond? Can we risk showing love and acceptance to all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds and lifestyles, allowing them to belong with us and our church as they explore faith, just as Jesus did with his disciples? Could we take the risk of being misunderstood by religious people Could we? Can we make a change to church culture to better represent Jesus to the UK today? In short, can we treat people like Jesus treated them? Now that question challenges me. And perhaps we all need to be wrestling with it. I mean, I haven't always got it right. A couple of real examples for me. um, They come from a few years ago. First, a woman in her 30s, long-term Christian, kids, husband, uh, well-known in the place where we lived as a Christian, not from our church, left her husband, walked out on him, had an affair, and and basically moved in with this other bloke. And after a while, she said to me, can I come and talk to you and Joe? And I said, fair enough, okay. And uh, her question was this, can I join your church? And I asked her about this relationship And this is what she said, I'll read it to you, my ongoing adultery is really helping me to witness for Jesus and to my friends, because my friends can now see that I am flawed like them, whereas before, I was always better than them. Now, sometimes you have to actually hear things to believe them. And far from saying, yeah, sure, join our church, come as you are, we challenged her to come back to us when she'd come back to her senses which she never did. And I would do the same again. Contrast that with a completely different but also true story. A young man, also in his 30s, background of drugs and addiction, single dad, he got saved, he got baptised, wonderful story of God breaking in, joined the church, loved and accepted, and then after a few months started a relationship with a single mum that he knew. Moved in with her, We met with him. I challenged him. He wasn't ready to receive that challenge. So to my lasting regret, I put him out of the church. With hindsight, that was a huge mistake. And God has convicted me of that since. You see, he was a new believer. He needed help. He needed friendship. He needed love. He needed close, careful discipleship in our church Family. I should have seen this woman as a target for the gospel, not as someone interrupting his life and discipleship. What he was met with was a Christian rule book and my fear of what people in my church would think if I didn't do that. That's what what he was met with. And guess what? That relationship with the woman just lasted a few weeks. But we never saw him at church again. Neither did we see his eight year old daughter, who had just been started coming to the kids' work and I know from the kids workers was soaking it all up like a sponge never saw her again she's in her 20s now i don't expect she's going on with god i got it way way wrong and at the time i thought i was absolutely right follow the rules Jesus has all sorts of people he wants to bring to us. All sorts of people he's going to reach with his love and grace in our towns. People who we can see born again and and baptized and set free to live for Jesus. But for that to happen, our churches have to be marked with the grace and the acceptance and the compassion and the love of Jesus. We've got to be walking in step with the Spirit and making space for all sorts of people as they want to belong first and then believe and then become with stumbles along the way. And maybe this begs a question for you. Maybe that question is yeah yeah but didn't Jesus get angry with people I read the Gospels Jesus got angry with people yeah he did he got angry with self-righteous hypocritical Pharisees but he had endless grace and love for people who were damaged and lost and broken like the woman caught in adultery like blind Bartimaeus like the lepers he touched and healed, like Zacchaeus, the thieving tax collector, like a man beset with a whole legion of demons, like Matthew, the tax collector, and like the immoral woman in our passage today. So when Matthew or Mary or Mohammed or Maisha or Steve or, or, or Stephanie or Sunil or Sunita turns up at your church or your small group, and when you realize that their beliefs are not your beliefs and that their lifestyle is not being lived in line with the Bible, Are we going to respond in fear and in self-righteousness, rushing in to point out the flaws and point out the errors and make sure they clearly understand their sin and pushing them to change so that we can accept them in? Are we going to get out the rule book and hose them down with our rules? Let's clean you up and make sure you're clean enough to come to our church. Holding them responsible if they choose to walk away because that's on them and I told them the truth. Or could we have the faith to believe that God's at work? And that he was at work before we got, even got involved at all. And that he wants to work through us. But the first step is to love people as Jesus loved them and allow them to belong. Now, maybe you can tell that prophetic challenge has, has gripped me. The challenge from Ben Nevis. I can still hear it. If we don't change our culture, we could go the same way as these ruins. And as a church, we've worked on ways to express this. I'll show you a couple of things. Belonging. We we came up with three phrases to try and communicate this with our town. Belong. We've expressed it in this phrase, come as you are, which is the only way anyone ever comes to Jesus. We're trying to create a come-as-you-are culture. Whatever background or lifestyle, you don't have to clean yourself up first. Believe is expressed in this phrase, know how loved you are. We want people to know that they are loved by God, to hear a gospel of grace that God is for them passionately deeply gave himself for them and become as expressed in this phrase become who you were created to be believing in Jesus isn't the end it's the beginning we want to help people become who God intended them to be belong believe become come as you are know how loved you are become who you were created to be and our new name welcome church and our new strap line it matters that you're here they are all parts of how we want to communicate and connect with our town in this culture. So far this calendar year at Welcome Church, we've baptised people from nine different nations. Praise God, I'm so pleased with that. One of our small groups now has a Muslim who attends every single time they meet. He allows the group to get around him and pray for him. He came to our Good Friday meeting. He's listening. Recently, he hosted the group in his home with his whole family and provided all the food. We've got another group where there are three widows who attend regularly. They all live in the same road as the group member who invited them. They are not yet Christians. But they love the food and the friendship and Jesus is impacting them. Let me mention a Chinese couple who came to us. They came to the UK looking to find business. Nobody in our town, and I mean nobody, spoke to them. They were totally and utterly lonely until one day someone from our church saw them in the park and felt prompted to speak to them and went and said hello. A little bit after that, they saw a Chinese flag in the window of our church building because of an event we were running for kids. They came in to see what it was. Those two events brought them to our church. They started coming on a Sunday morning to find one thing, friendship. At church, they met others who spoke Mandarin and helped them understand the messages. Then they joined a small group. Coming from a communist country, they knew nothing about Jesus, nothing about the Bible, nothing about Christianity. Their goal was to make money. They belonged to our church and joined a small group when they knew no belief or faith except atheism. And we baptized them as new Christians in March this year. Praise God. Not a dry eye in the house as they gave their testimony. And now they're learning what it means to live the life that Jesus has called them into and they're here at West Point too. I want to encourage you to reflect on all this. How could you model belong, believe, become in your life, in your family, in your small group, in your workplace? How can you create a community where people can come as they are, find out how loved they are and see who God intended them to be? For church leaders, what might this mean for your church? What do you need to start doing? What do you need to stop doing? Time's disappearing. I just want to finish very briefly with an analogy that I hope you'll remember, it's called the peach and the coconut, some churches are like coconuts, it's my coconut today, coconuts are hard to get into, I remember my brother winning one of these at the fair from a coconut shy, and uh, it was a nightmare trying to get into it, in the end my dad ended up with a, a chisel and a hammer going in the top. And after all that work, when he got in there, what was inside was basically disgusting. This bland milk and this white mush. Who knows, right, coconuts, they don't taste like bounty bars. One of life's first disappointments. (laughs) Churches can be like coconuts. Hard to get into. And then when you do get in, it wasn't worth the effort. Churches can be like that when we have a rules-based behavior-driven culture where being accepted depends on having the right external behaviors and being sane to hold the correct beliefs, just like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Let's not build coconut churches. Instead, can I suggest we should try to be more like a peach? Now, peaches are lovely. What's a peach like? A peach is soft. A peach is easy to get into, it is nourishing, it is is full of life, it's not difficult to to kind of get inside a peach, and it's well worth the effort. Peaches are tasty, they're nourishing, and at the center they still have this very solid core, this solid stone. I would suggest that this is the culture we need to go for, a great analogy for what Jesus modeled, a grace-based culture. Jesus always led with grace, especially around the most broken people. He led with a grace that drew people in, but he didn't withhold the truth. He came full of grace and truth. If you hung around Jesus, you received grace and truth. Jesus embraced all sorts of people whilst always maintaining his absolutely wonderful godly convictions. I believe the Holy Spirit can help us do the same as churches. Let's build churches that are peachy, welcoming, inclusive, easy to get into, full of life and rock solid in our core beliefs, just like a peach. And the question to consider is, is your church more like a coconut or more like a peach? And maybe you're not the best person to answer that question. Maybe it's the people with messy, broken, damaged, sinful lives. Who either are or aren't flooding through the doors of your church that are the best place to give you the answer to that question. It's so easy to build coconut culture. Do you know, sadly, it's possible to be faithful to biblical truth but to miss the mission of Jesus altogether. To know the truth but create a culture like a hard coconut. Now, oh, don't get me wrong, we don't want to become a squashy tomato which has got nothing in the middle soft all the way through no 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 i I like tomatoes i like coconuts but we're going for peaches how could you be more peachy how could you create a culture where people can taste and see that the lord is good finish by saying this that uk culture has changed welcome to babylon if our church culture is designed so that we're really only able to connect with heterosexual probably married couples with reasonably well-behaved children, and I fear too often that this is the case, then we are putting increasing numbers of people beyond our gospel reach. Oh, God will still reach them. He just won't do it through us. We'll become the relic. We'll become the ruin of a bygone age. I personally refuse to believe that there are groups of people who, because of their belief, their lifestyle, their sexuality, or anything else, are beyond the reach of the gospel. The gospel is for everyone. And we need to build churches where all types of people that live in this UK culture can be reached and won for Jesus. This is an issue of faith. God's desire and ability to save has not diminished in any way. And by putting belonging up front, as I've described it, we can create a culture where all sorts of people can connect. We're alive now, not in the 1900s. It's today. And don't get me wrong, the culture in our nation could change. I mean, if you're in a culture of intense persecution, Belonging might not be up front, but most of us here, we're in the UK. I mean, if you're here from India, Pakistan, other places, you've got to work out the application of this. It might be very different in another nation, but we're not in that day. We must understand the culture we live in. We mustn't bury our heads in the sand, hoping that something will happen and God will intervene and we'll all go back to the culture of the 1950s and Jesus will be okay to talk about again and it'll all be all right. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. We're called to build the church here today in a post-UK culture influenced as it is by post-modernism, by the rejection of Christian heritage, by the thinking of a millennial generation who are increasingly leading the way and shaping the future as they should be and who will not be reached by a 1990s style of church culture and church life, let alone anything older than that. Now, there's all sorts of things I haven't touched on. I haven't touched on what Belong, Belief, Become might mean for baptism, discipleship, membership, church discipline, serving, ministry, preaching. We could spend hours. Each one of those could be a seminar in itself. I haven't touched on them. I just want to leave you thinking, how are you doing? And I've shared this stuff from our church, not because we've got it all right, but I just want to stimulate your thinking. I mean, we're doing better as a church in some areas than others. Sometimes we think we're doing well, and then you find, oh, we've got coconut shell armor over here. We've got to think about what that means. But when someone like the woman from Tony Campolo's story, or the woman from the passage we read, or that unmarried couple who live next door to you, or that legally married gay couple who live over the road with a couple of kids, or that ex-offender, or the Muslim guy, or the Buddhist girl, or the atheist mum, or the transgender teenagers who all your kids at school know, believe me, they do, when one of those wants to come to your church, to your small group, will they be welcome with grace? Will they be treated with value just as they are, creating space for God to work? Or will self-righteousness and fear hold us back? Will our culture deter the people we're called to reach? My prayer is that we'll be known for peachy churches as commission, built on a culture of grace with God's rock-solid truth in our core. But please know up front, this will get messy, just like eating a peach. It has implications for how we do church life we may be misunderstood by religious people just as Jesus was but until religious people are accusing us of breaking religious rules compromising on truth going soft on sin and welcoming sinners perhaps our churches are not representing Jesus as much as we might think they are let's pray Heavenly Father I thank you for your church. We love your church. Lord, I pray that you would help us in this nation to build and plant churches where all types of people can connect. Lord, let us not be afraid of the challenges, hiding in our bunkers, hoping that you'll come back and make it all okay. Jesus, as the wheat and the tares are growing up together, help us not to be ripping up the wheat that you're sowing through fear or self-righteousness father help us to be welcoming to all to help them know that they can come as they are know they are loved and that they can become who god intended them to be help us to get this right father i pray in jesus name amen i'll just leave you with this if you want to read a bit more because i've only scratched the surface let me recommend two books simon benham's book the peach and the coconut and john burke's book unshockable love both fantastic books. I recommend them to you highly. And one last thing, you could ask anyone from Welcome Church about what we're up to. They're good people, and I'm sure they'll be more than happy to tell you what we've been doing. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today.